scripture reading this morning is again in 1 Peter, reading from the NIV today, starting in verse 13 of chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, and reading through verse 6 of chapter 4. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for their evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now this morning, there's a lot in this passage that we're not going to cover. Um, and there's some of this passage that has caused Christians throughout the centuries to ask a lot of questions. And if some of those things catch your attention this morning, I want you to file them away in a file folder in your brain, and you can pull them out tonight at six o'clock in Bible study. All right. I don't want you to get distracted by the things you have questions about and miss the truth from this passage that God wants to speak to us this morning. Fair enough? Okay. All right. So, as we come into this passage, we're building on all that's already come before in 1 Peter. And I'm just going to remind you that in this letter, the Holy Spirit inspires Peter to go in a cyclical pattern. And he keeps returning to themes over and over and over again. And one of those overarching themes is the theme of suffering. Right? We've seen it 
multiple times already, and we're going to see a lot in this section. And so the first verse, verse 13, raises this question of who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, in this question, we need to just stop for a moment and think about the different kinds of harm or suffering that we experience in this world. And for the sake of this morning, we're going to put those kinds of harm and suffering in three categories. The first category is just the fallenness of the world we live in. Everything about this world has been impacted by sin, which means that all of us are going to experience harm or suffering because of that. Just because the world we live in is corrupt, it's messed up. So maybe we experience harm or suffering because of other people's wrong choices that impact us. That fits in this category. Maybe we experience harm or suffering because this actual earth is groaning under the weight of sin. And so it has earthquakes and it has hurricanes. And it, there are things that are produced in this world because of sin, like sickness. There's suffering, there's harm in the world, simply because the earth itself is fallen. And no one is immune to experiencing that kind of harm and suffering to one degree or another. And God can step in and intervene supernaturally, at times he does, but all of us experience some of the harm or suffering in this world just because this world is messed up. Can we all agree with that? The world's broken. And so all of us suffer because of it. Now the second category of suffering is consequence of our own wrong action. And so this verse, verse 13, is raising the question, look, if you do good instead of wrong, if you do good to your neighbors, whether they love Jesus or not, if you have a good attitude and kind words to people that you interact with, if you're serving society rather than working against it, if you're doing good, why would people want to harm you for doing that? In other words, if you're not doing good, if you're doing the opposite, if you're hurtful with your words to other people, what is that going to provoke, especially non-believers, to do back to you? Hurt you with their words. If you treat others poorly, what is that going to encourage them to do in response? Treat you poorly. If you have an aggressive, attacking attitude on social media, what is that going to provoke other people to do to you on social media? Be aggressive and attack back. The question in verse 13 is this. Look, there's a lot of harm that people bring on themselves, a lot of suffering that people experience because they aren't doing good. Because if we're doing good to our neighbors, oftentimes that's going to spur them to do good in return. That's not why we do good. But often what you give is what you get back, right? Not karma. That's not what we're talking about. But just simply... If you are loving towards people, it makes you pretty lovable. Now, the third type of suffering, however, is addressed in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. This is suffering or harm that comes upon us, persecution that's in the will of God for the sake of Jesus. That when you do the right thing, and it does bring suffering, because that is a thing too. 
Jesus promised us that. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. It reads, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward. Where? In heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter is referring back to the teachings of Jesus. He says, look, if you are suffering for doing the right thing, there's blessing that's promised for that. And Jesus told us that at times we would suffer for doing the right thing. Look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. That's a title Jesus used for himself. So he's saying there will be times that people will hate you, that they will leave you out, that they will use insulting words against you, that they'll call you evil because of your allegiance to him, of your allegiance to Jesus. Look at John chapter 15. John 15, verses 18 to 21. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And finally, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes it this way. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it almost seems like it could be conflicting, right? Because we have the question, well, who would want to harm you if you do good? But if you do get harmed <laughs> because you're doing good, then there's a blessing. I think there's a principle here that the modern-day Christian really needs to take into account. Sometimes... When we call ourselves Christian and we are suffering, we just immediately blame it on persecution, whether from demons, unclean spirits, and Satan himself, or whether from other people. Well, I'm suffering for Jesus. Jesus said this would happen. I'm suffering for him. Before we get to that conclusion, we need to first ask ourselves the question, is what I am suffering the result of me having done good? Or is it the result of me having done the opposite? I think that many Christians think they've experienced the third form of suffering, which is persecution, when actually they've experienced consequences because they haven't done the good that Jesus would do. They've done something in the flesh that's of their own making. And social media is an easy target right now because it's everywhere, okay, if you're on social media. And on social media, I see people in the name of Jesus copying the most unchristlike attitude possible posting things as a Christian, and then there's just hatred that comes out. 
Okay? When they get slandered by people because of that, they're not being persecuted for the name of Jesus. They're experiencing harm because they didn't do good. I'm not saying we can't speak the truth on social media. We need to. If you follow me on Facebook, you see that I post truth on there every day. But the way that we do that needs to be a way that reflects the attitude of Jesus, the character of Jesus. So this morning, if you're suffering, I want you to ask yourselves the questions. Am I suffering just because it's a fallen world and there's bad stuff that happens? Am I suffering because of consequences of things that I've done that didn't line up with the character of Jesus? Or am I suffering because I'm actually doing good and that offends the powers of darkness? And therefore, there's suffering and harm that's coming back on me. So there's different kinds of suffering. But now this is dealing specifically with the suffering for what is right. He says that you will be blessed. Um, it says, don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Here's a theme again that as followers of Jesus, we're not to be afraid of people. Not afraid of what they think. Not afraid of what they might do to us. If we're coming under threat because we're doing good, we're doing right, and we're living in a way that reflects the character of Jesus, we're not to be afraid of those earthly human consequences. Um, but however, if we skip ahead in verse 15 at the end, it says that our response is to be with gentleness and respect. The NIV here uses the word respect. It's really the word fear. So again, we have the same apparent contradiction, it's not a contradiction, that we saw last week, that we're not to be afraid, but we're to fear. Why? We're not to be afraid of people. We're to fear the Lord. And therefore, that changes how we react, how we handle suffering, how we respond to persecution. If you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We're to have a holy awe, a reverence for God. And it means that we don't have to fear people. We don't have to fear things that would happen to us in this world. Remember what Jesus said, and we read earlier in Matthew, when he was talking about how you're blessed if you experience persecution for his name's sake. Why did he say you're blessed? Because there's a reward waiting for you in heaven. It's that long view, that 2020 vision that takes an eternal perspective that says, you know what? The worst they can do to me here is kill me. And that just means glory. And that I receive the rewards that God has in store for me as someone who has borne his name, someone who has represented him. Look now again at verse 15. But in your hearts, revere, or some translations have sanctified Christ as Lord. This is fearing him, not others. And when we talk about in your hearts, that's the core of who you are. It's the place where you make decisions and where you have emotions. And I want to tell you something, that the decision-making comes first 
The emotion comes after. There's a choice to be made that I fear Jesus and Jesus alone. He is my Lord and Master. Only his opinion matters. Only what pleases him matters. Now, my emotions are going to follow that decision, maybe not immediately. I might still find myself having the emotion of fear of pleasing people or fear of what others think. And I have to submit those emotions to the decision that I have made, that I reverence Christ as Lord and no one else. When we talk about the freedom in that control song, this is what it's talking about. That when we get to that place where that is all that matters, there's a freedom that comes. Because there's only one audience, and that's the Lord. There's only one aim, and that's to please Him. And so no matter our circumstances, we are able to live in that freedom. It's a deep commitment to reverence Christ as Lord, to sanctify him as Lord. That's not just to believe with our brain that Jesus came and died and rose again. It's not just to think that he's God, but it's a, a heartfelt commitment that I live for him and him alone. Come what may. No matter the consequences on this earth. Because I live for eternal reward. So we're to reverence him as Lord from our hearts. And then it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, this verse, I've heard this verse used so often, talking about being prepared to witness, to tell people about Jesus, to share the gospel. And it is talking about that. And I've heard the, the uh, command to be prepared elaborated on in all kinds of ways. Well, you need to be prepared, so you need to get a theology degree or go do biblical studies. You need to be prepared, so you need to take this evangelism course so that you're ready to tell people about Jesus. All of those things are good things, but can I tell you that I don't really think that's what is in mind here when the command is given to be prepared? If we go back to the book of Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, uh, looking at verses... Verses 11 and 12. Jesus is talking about, in this passage, his followers who are being slandered and persecuted for doing what is right, for doing good, for being his followers, for bearing his name. And look at what he says to them. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Do you know how you're prepared to give an answer? By being filled with God's Holy Spirit and making him your teacher. And you don't make that decision in the moment when it's time to give an answer. That's something that has come ahead. And God, I want your spirit to fill me to overflow. I want to surrender myself completely to your presence. I want you to teach me. I want you to guide me. I want you to show me how to walk. We're prepared through fostering that relationship with God's Spirit. And then when we're giving this answer, it's giving an answer to those who ask for you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, this is what is incredible to me. The platform here for sharing the gospel with other people is how you are handling suffering. 
The picture here is that a believer is being slandered or harmed or persecuted for doing what's right, for representing Jesus, and they're doing that, and even though they're experiencing these negative things, they still exhibit hope. They're not defeated because people talk bad about them. They're not defeated because things are difficult. And when the people see that hope in someone who is experiencing suffering for the name of Jesus, it will cause them to ask the question, how are you not depressed right now? How are you not defeated? How are you not crushed? And that's when we give the reason for the hope that we have. So now I want you to think about when you've experienced suffering and hardship in your life. Did the character of your heart that was on display during that suffering exhibit hope that would have prompted people to ask you what you've got that they don't? Or would you have just caved under the pressure of that suffering in a way that wouldn't have prompted anybody to want to know the Jesus that you know? Guys, this is, I want this. I want to be in a place where come what may, my hope isn't here. It's not in this life. So people can degrade me if they want to. They can try to kill my body. They can try to take away my freedoms. And my hope wouldn't be touched. That's what I want. And guys, the Holy Spirit is able to bring us to that place. So that when we go through those pressured times, those times of intense suffering, when we get squeezed, what comes out is the hope of eternal reward that is so attractive. Because remember, everybody is impacted by suffering and harm even if it's not persecution. And when they watch Christians walk through it with their hope and confidence facing towards Christ in heaven at the right hand of God, that will give us an opportunity as people filled and taught by the Holy Spirit to answer their question when they're like, what on earth, how? How are you doing this? Let me tell you. I have a hope in Jesus that goes deeper than any circumstance I can experience. I have a hope in Jesus that will outlive my grave. And there's nothing anything in this world can do to touch me. Look at verse 16. It says that when we do this, I'm going to come back to verse 15, but it says that we're to do it keeping a clear conscience. Can I encourage you again, that's something that starts before the conversation in the midst of suffering ever happens. That clear conscience thing, that's something that the Holy Spirit enables too. This is a life that is spirit-filled and spirit-empowered. This is that life that when people try to slander you, it actually brings shame on them because your life is above reproach as someone who's filled with God's very presence. Can I tell you that when people ask you about the hope you have, when they ask you about the good news of Jesus, 
that the testimony of your deeds before that moment speak a whole lot louder than the words that come out of your mouth when the question is asked. It's a much stronger testimony. The words have to come. There has to come a point where we're able to share, where that question comes and we're able to tell people, look, Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus has changed me. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, can do the same thing for you, and you can have the hope of heaven when you die. We have to get to those words, but those words only have impact if they're backed up by a spirit-led, spirit-filled life. we got to prepare to be people of good conscience. Going back to verse 15, when we give this answer, it says we're to do it, we talked about the respect or the fear, but with gentleness. This is that same word meekness from last week when we talked about wives to husbands. It's strength that's under control. It's a humble, gentle spirit. We can defend our hope without getting defensive. We can give a reason. We can give an answer without becoming a defensive person. Man, can I tell you, I struggle with this sometimes. And I want the Lord to change me. Just the other day... Um, Darren and I were trying to game plan for getting up earlier to walk in the mornings. These 4.30 alarms are about to kill me, okay? Um, and so part of our game plan was that um, Darren doesn't normally eat breakfast before he leaves for work, and he takes pretty small snacks with him as part of our trying to eat healthier. And so he had said, you know, I think I want to scramble up a bunch of eggs and some turkey bacon and, like, crumble it in with and then have that in the fridge so that I can just microwave it really fast and I can get some protein after we've gotten up early to walk and kind of get some energy. And so I'm like, oh, sweet. So he had said a number of how many eggs and how much, how many strips of bacon. And so I thought, man, I'm going to do that for him. I'm going to you know, be a wife that will serve him. So I fried up those, those eggs and bacon and had it all packaged for him. And so then the, the next day, I think it was, he was getting stuff out and he asked me, how many eggs I had scrambled. And I'm like, well, six, what you told me? What you told me to do? And instantly, I got defensive. And he had to stop me. He was like, babe, I just forgot how many I asked you to do. You don't need to get defensive. If I ask you a question, it's not because I'm trying to attack you. It's just because I want the answer. And I had to repent in that moment. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what that is in me. Like, I need God to take that out of me. But you hear what I'm saying? How many times when people ask us about the hope that we have, do we go on the defensive with our attitude and our spirit? But God says, no, you're going to respond with meekness, with gentleness, with strength under control, so that people can receive the answer. I think that sometimes we feel like we're being attacked, and so we go on to that defensive posture, but that defensive posture doesn't put the witness of the gospel out there for people. Right. We can present the gospel without attacking the persecutor. Even if we are being attacked, we don't attack back. We respond with gentleness. Verse 17, a summary statement here, for it is better if it is God's will 
to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You know what that tells me? Sometimes it is God's will that we suffer for doing good. And so we surrender control of that. Say, God, if there are times when it's in your will for me to suffer for doing good, that's okay because I know that suffering brings a reward and I would much prefer that than suffering for doing evil, which does not bring a reward. It brings consequence. It brings punishment. Look at 18 to 22. It says, For Christ also suffered, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Let's just stop there. Here we are right back to Jesus as our example of someone who suffered for doing good. And why did he suffer for doing good? Why did he suffer for not doing anything wrong? Because he wanted to give us something who deserved to suffer for being unrighteous. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so Jesus was willing to submit to suffering, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Because he wanted you to have a relationship with him, and it was the only way. And so he is our example. Even if we're in a place of being attacked, we endure that suffering and we respond with gentleness and with hope for the hope that Jesus will do the same thing again, that he'll redeem suffering in a way that will draw people to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. The worst that this world can throw at us that our physical bodies is death, and Jesus went there. But he didn't stay there. Because he was raised back to life through the power of God's Spirit. And so we too have that same hope. Verse 20, um, it talks about, um, well, verse 19, it says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now the imagery has moved to thinking about Noah in the days of the flood. And this is a bit difficult for us because we don't think of the water of the flood as being saving waters, right? Because it destroyed everything. However, in the midst of the water, God saved Noah and his family. There were the few that were righteous, that were redeemed. And think about how before the flood happened, how the script would have been so flipped. Can you imagine the slander, the persecution that Noah would have experienced as the one remaining righteous man when everyone around him was evil? But yet God rescues him. And in the same way, he will rescue us if we will do what is right. He talks about the waters of baptism. They don't save us because the water itself does something to our bodies, but because it's the symbol of the good conscience of someone who's been united with Jesus in both death and resurrection. It's Jesus, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels' authorities and powers and submission to him. Again, the script is flipped. Jesus submits himself, humbles himself to become a man, to even suffer unto death at the cross 
But now, he stands in the position of the highest authority, and everything submits to him. He submitted for a time, and God exalted him in the same way God calls us to submit for a time to suffering, to submit to authority, the submission we talked about throughout 1 Peter. But there will come a day when because of that submission, he will lift us up. The humble will be exalted. All right, let's look at chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Can I tell you this morning that suffering tests our true loyalties? When we are suffering for the sake of Christ, if we endure, it proves to ourselves that we really have forsaken sin. And that Christ has become Lord. It's the ultimate form of self-denial that proves whether or not we've chosen Jesus over sin. Verse 2, the choice is phrased a different way. As a result, they do not leave the, live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. We've seen this before in 1 Peter 2, that we have a choice to make, to pursue our own natural desires that are sinful because of our sin natures, or to pursue the desires of the heart of God, to pursue His will. And when we face suffering, that choice is in front of us. Because it might be easier to cave to our sinful desires and come out from under the suffering that comes through pursuing God's will. We have a choice to make. The NIV says that they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for. Some translations say that they don't live them chasing after. What are you chasing after? Your own desires of what makes you comfortable or the will of God? Verse 3, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. In other words, if you're not sure what those sinful human desires are, some of the humans are about to be unpacked. Living in debauchery, that's any kind of extreme indulgence, specifically sexual indulgence, but it can even be used of gluttony, any kind of extremism in indulging the desires of the body. Lust. That's a sexual chasing after in the mind, in the heart, even if it doesn't actually become action in and of itself. Drunkenness, orgies, again, sexuality taken to its extreme. Carousing, this is talking about wild parties, specifically with alcohol. And detestable idolatry. And this is the setting where all that stuff happens in the worship of anything other than God himself. It was the setting then. They actually had these sexual orgies. They had the drunken parties surrounding the worship of false gods. But can I tell you that it's the same now, even though we don't call the idols with personal pronoun names? That it's in the midst of worshiping something other than Jesus as Lord that these sexual exploits, these alcohol um, exploits, this overindulgence, it takes place in the context of idolatry. Um, I 
know that several of you would have seen in the news this week about how they were able to free 39 children out of human trafficking this week. And it just gives people a little glimpse of the tip of the iceberg of the corruption that's in our own country. I shared before about researching when I was in college and human trafficking and specifically the sex slave trade. But can I tell you where, at least as of then, and I would, I would believe that the stats are the same now, where the sex slave trade is most active in the United States? It's outside of any sports arena or concert that takes place in our country. Because people take sport or artistry that should cause us to look to God and give him worship that he would give these gifts, these strengths, these abilities to people. It should cause us to worship him, but instead, so often, our worship becomes that of idolatry that's focused on the creation rather than the creator. And in that idolatry, people start to live it up and have a good time. They get drunk. They don't even know that they're about to go out with a child sex slave when they leave that place because they assume they're with a prostitute as an adult of mutual consent, but they're not. Sexual indulgence, alcohol indulgence, it all centers around the worship of the creation rather than the creator. And it can even be as simple as self-worship because I can become my own idol, which means that what makes me feel good is what I do not considering the consequences for others or even really for myself in the long run. So God is saying, you know what, in your past, you've had enough of this. He's not saying it's unforgivable. He's saying that the very people that he's writing to, this is the stuff they participated in. But he's saying, you know what, you've had enough of the things that the pagans, the nations chase after. It's time to pursue the will of God. It goes on in verse 4 to talk about how the people that you used to do these things with are surprised when you stop. <laughs> it's a bit of an abrupt reality when the people that you partied with are like, hey, let's go do whatever. And you're like, yeah, I don't do that anymore. And a lot of these early Christians were experiencing slander for that reason says in verse 5 that they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And then in verse 6, it talks about how this is why the gospel had been preached even to believers who have already died when this letter is being written. Because even though other people might look on and say, well, hey, the Christians die just like everybody else, so you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry and chase after your own desires. But God says, look, yes, they experience judgment according to a human standard and a physical death. But if they were united with Christ, it means they'll be resurrected with him to new life, the reward that comes in eternal life. Can you look at the screen with me for a moment? I just felt like the Lord wanted me to put together a summary picture of what we've been looking at in First Peter. Call it the gospel lived out in relationship. It's what we've been talking about for weeks now. And at the center we have us, you, being in Christ Jesus. You see the little orange arrow pointing down the word union? 
I'm using the orange arrows to represent the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't talk about the Spirit a lot, but the Spirit's work is implied. So it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that when we're born again as a follower of Jesus, that we have a union with him so that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And as a result of that, you see the other orange arrow, the Holy Spirit stirs and changes our desires so that we now desire God's will instead of our own. So now that impacts every relationship. Firstly, it impacts how we relate to Father God, that just like Jesus feared his Father over the opinions and the actions of man, so do we. And then out of that fear, we begin to submit to human authority, to love the church, to do good to all people, to suffer meekly with hope when we come under persecution. Friends, all of this comes out of the union with Jesus. So if you've heard some of these instructions that we've been seeing in First Peter, and you're like, man, that doesn't look like my life at all. I don't have to do that. Or you're like, well, I look at when I suffer, and I don't look like Jesus and how I work through it. It's time to come back to the center. And that is this, are you in union with Jesus? Because if you're united with him in his death, and in his resurrection, then through the work of his spirit in your life, these things begin to form and develop. This isn't like a checklist of all these behaviors that we have to get down, the things we have to stop doing, or the things we have to start doing. All of it flows out of a relationship with Jesus that is complete union with him, that gives him control. And when that happens, these other relationships are impacted in this way. Are you united with Jesus this morning? Or are you off somewhere on your own trying to make the best that you can with the desires that you have that keep getting you into scrapes of trouble? Everybody suffers. But if we suffer in union with Jesus, we'll be blessed. There will be reward. It'll be worth. pray this morning that your spirit would begin to stir the people in this room. Jesus, you said that you were the vine and that we were the branches. That if we would remain in you, we would produce much fruit. But Lord, we will exhaust ourselves trying to be what we think we're supposed to be or be what other people think we're supposed to be or to match up with some checklist somewhere. But we're like a branch that's just dead laying on the side of the road and we can't do it. Lord, we don't know how to suffer in a way that is attractive or that shows hope. We can't do that in ourselves. But Jesus, you did it. You want to do it through us. So God, I pray this morning that those dead branches are just laying off to the side. God, that they would call out to you and ask you to graft them into your mind. 
yet done the stuff they can do with their own desires. They spend enough time and energy there. They want you. Your will. Your desires. Give you control. Jesus.